0: We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. For a show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves of 3CR Community Radio. Before us, you heard Sally with Out of the Pan. Make sure you check out that show, For All Things Pansexual, every Sunday from 12 till 1. Today on the show, I am joined by Jamie Woodhouse, who is host of the Sentientism podcast. Uh, Yeah, great to have you on the show, Jamie. Thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Nick.
0: And we're going to do something a little bit different on the show, um, perhaps a little bit familiar for Jamie, but but different for this show, is I, I'm going to actually steal Jamie's format for the show and just have things reverse in terms of rather than Jamie being the one asking the question, he'll be answering them. And so sort of tables will be turned. So it'll be a little bit d- a different format from our show. But um, yeah, this will give listeners a, a sort of a taste of the, the format of Jamie's show as well. I might want to check that out, hopefully. So... Yeah, I guess the way that you often start the show is talking about what sentientism is um, So maybe yeah. I thought with me being the host today, with me being you today, I might have a go at sort of, uh, I was going to say butchering. I don't know if that's the best, uh, best sentient term for it, but I'll have my go at um, muddling through it, what it means and then you can correct, add, etc. So I guess
1: from... That sounds good. I'll give you marks out of 10.
0: Yeah. From listening to Jamie's podcast, I get the impression that sentientism is about... Uh, using reason and rational- rationality in a-, a naturalistic approach rather than a supernatural or religious approach to finding out what is real uh, and it also is about um, having compassion and consideration for all sentient beings regardless of species um, so that is sort of it in a nutshell What, what anything you'd like to add correct etc to that Jamie?
1: No, I think that's a great summary, and yeah, in a sentence, I summarise it as evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. So yeah, yeah.
0: great, spot okay. on. Yeah, um, and we've already mentioned your podcast, but do you want to talk a little bit about um, yeah your 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 work, your podcast, um, other things you do? I know there is also um, a whole community around this, and, and Facebook groups and that kind of thing. So do you want to talk a little bit about um, your work around sentientism?
1: Yeah, so. Um- I guess the idea is that it's a worldview, you know, a way of thinking, maybe a, a philosophy um, that tries to answer those two deep questions you laid out: what's real and what matters morally. So it links this sort of um, way of understanding reality, but also a moral stance that tells us, you know, which types of things should matter morally, which we should have compassion for. Um, so it's a, it's a it's an amateurish project, but in a sense, the idea is to try and persuade. Uh, 7.8 billion people to agree with it, thereby solving all the world's problems. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that is, clearly is ridiculous. But in, in a sense, I, I, you know, I do think that when we look at all of the problems in the world today, particularly the human-caused problems, most of them seem to come, when you work out what, what's at their root, they do seem to come down to either people having a failure of compassion in some sense, you know, excluding other humans or other sentient beings, as part of an out group and not giving them moral consideration and not caring about them. Uh, Or it's just understanding the world wrongly and just being wrong about stuff, right? So even compassionate people can do bad things if they just get stuff wrong. So in a sense, this idea of sentientism is trying to respond to both of those things. It doesn't fix them perfectly, but it's saying at least with a naturalistic approach, we'll have a better chance of understanding reality well. Um, And if we have a sentiocentric compassion, you know, we care about all beings that can suffer we're not going to exclude any suffering being from consideration. Hmm. So it doesn't answer all of the problems, but it sets a tries to set a baseline. So um, th- I guess the things we're doing, one is trying to develop that philosophy. Uh, so it, we do want it to be, you know, academically well-grounded and rigorous, if you like, but also something that's very, very easy to understand in that sentence, evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. Um, so we're, do- we're doing some work to develop that philosophy and, Ground out its edges and think about its implications. Um, but we're also doing um, outreach to connect with academics, philosophers, activists, influencers, to try and um, find people who already seem to think this way uh, and to get them involved and to build communities around the idea as well. Um, so as you said, you know, our biggest um, sentientism community is on Facebook, but we're on a bunch of other places as well. We have a website, sentientism.info. Um, and the communities are open to anyone who's interested in these sorts of ideas, not just people who sign up to sentientism. Uh, it's a very sort of it's just a worldview. There's no membership. There's no money. There's no hierarchy. There's no structure. There's it's just a way of describing how more and more people are starting to think about the world and how to do good in it.
0: Yeah, and I was actually thinking, you know, do we need to define sentience? And I think you have sort of done that in a way of ability to suffer. But I guess just thinking we've got a wide range of people listening in that definitely includes animal activists, but could also just include people just tuning into 3CR. Um, So, yeah, I mean, does that, do you think that explains it enough? Or is there anything you'd like to say, I guess, for those who are maybe quite new to these conversations about what sentience is?
1: Yeah, it's an unfamiliar term to many people. Mm. Um, And I do think that, you know, can they suffer question is is probably the quickest way to develop an intuition for it. Um, it, In a way, it's the capacity to have experiences. Um, And we might call the negative experiences suffering. We might call the positive experiences flourishing. But in a sense, it's the ability to have any experiences at all. Um, it sounds quite like consciousness and some people use the two terms in the same way, uh, but sometimes consciousness has some extra stuff bundled into it, you know, creativity, ability to plan for the future, a certain, you know, intellectual capacity maybe that some people think is required for consciousness. And sentience zeroes in on what I see as the morally important bit, which is the capacity to suffer, the capacity to flourish um and to feel and have value. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. that's how I describe sentience.
0: And I guess, like, without getting too scientific, which isn't my expertise at all, but I guess things like a central nervous system to feel pain that kind of thing would be sort of somewhere within that mix in terms of sentientism uh, yeah, sorry. I mean, yeah yeah
1: so so that's one of the uh, weird things about sentientism is it doesn't actually define the mechanism if you like of sentience it doesn't say you know what it really is, it says it's just this capacity to suffer or to flourish mm. um so there's actually you'd be surprised at how many different views there are about yeah. you know what what sentience is um but yeah my view would i think be roughly in line with scientific consensus which suggests that from the evidence we've gathered so far um yeah, some sort of centralized nervous system seems to be required uh, for the type of sentience we're talking about um uh, and you know the naturalistic part of sentientism just says look we should follow the science so we should be uncertain we should have humility we should be always open to new evidence there's new research happening all the time but yeah i think that's where the fairly solid scientific consensus is at the moment if you have some form of fairly centralized nervous system that helps you that means you have the capacity for sentience if you don't uh you probably don't yeah but like i say it depends how weird you want to get but there are many different views of you know, what sentience and its characteristic might be, and also how widespread it might be across different types of species and different entities, even beyond animals.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I was was even thinking, and obviously we probably could spend the whole show sort of breaking down these terms, but I was thinking... Um, that you've used the term naturalistic quite a bit as well. And, and like some people might kind of associate that with nature or something like that, like environmentalism yeah. as well. Um, but I guess it's more referring to having that worldview rather than a religious or supernatural uh, worldview. Um, so, yeah, maybe yeah. in the yeah. next bit, if, if you want to say anything about that, but also the question you asked your guests and I'll ask you is, is what you believe in, but also going back to your, your childhood, early days, um, how does that differ in terms of were you brought up in a religious household or a non-religious household? So yeah, I, either or both
1: of those things. <laughs> yeah, well, I can I can probably tell you my personal story and then you know that will lead up to this naturalistic approach I mm. try to take now. Mm. Um, so um, I grew up in the UK in the countryside. Um, and I grew up in, I guess, a, what I call a gently religious context. You know, it was quite a background thing. We have quite a sort of boring, anodyne version of Christianity, the Church of England here. That's quite, you know, it's not that intrusive. It's not that strict. Um, and it's not something I chose, of course. It was just, you know, the water I swam in culturally, really, you know, my parents, my society around me. Um, uh, so I, I, I sort of just accepted it as default because that's what everyone told me was. True, you know, so there's a deity, there's heaven and hell, there's the Bible, there's lists of rules you need to follow, and so on and so forth. So I did just assume that was right. Um, I guess in my early teenage years, I started to explore um, a little bit more deeply, partly through understanding the history of Christianity and all of its thousands of different varieties, um, but also learning about the history, the social history of other religions as well. And it rap- very rapidly just became clear to me that this was these were all much more likely to be human creations than they were creations of some perfect overarching being. Um, So it was partly a resistance to the sort of facts and the evidence I was seeing laid out. They just didn't seem convincing to me. The stories that were being told that were being told to me that were true didn't seem to be backed up by reality. There were conflicts and incoherences and inconsistencies even within the religious stories I was being told. So there was a sort of fact-based you know, reason why I pushed back a bit, but there was also an ethical challenge in many of the varieties of the religions I was learning about that seemed to, you know, I liked the stories about compassion and caring for others that seemed to fit with my intuitions. Um, you know, I could see the value in the community cohesion and the being together and, you know, c- wanting to cooperate, but I also saw some constraints to that compassion. You know, there were quite frequently out groups where your Compassion didn't extend quite so generously. Um, the compassion was often often conditional. You know, if you didn't follow the rules, you might be excluded and um, punished in this world or burned for eternity in hell <laughs> in the next. So, so I, I also had some ethical reasons to challenge and push back. So in simple terms, I became, an, depending on how you define it, an atheist or an agnostic, you know, an extreme agnostic. Leave a little bit of wiggle room. These things could be possible, but there's you know practically infinite number of things unsupported by evidence that could be true so you know why i believe these ones it seemed arbitrary to me so i became yeah in simple terms an atheist um but atheism doesn't really do much for you in terms of anything else it's just a statement that you don't have a belief in a deity um so i guess i one i extended that across other domains of my life so at certain points i was quite interested in various aspects of the mystical you know alternative medicines Um, other types of things. But when I started to apply this um, similar way of thinking, I developed a similar level of skepticism around those as well. So I went from a sort of atheistic agnostic stance with religion to what I am calling a more broadly naturalistic stance that in simple terms does two things. One, it says, I'm going to use a, a method of evidence and reason to try and work out what's true. So it's just a way of developing beliefs and credences but it often leads people to a second type of naturalism, which just says, look, I think physical reality, the natural world is all that exists. There doesn't seem to be evidence for anything beyond that, whether it's a deity or you know, spirits or souls or something else. Um, so I guess, you know, that broadened out into a naturalistic way of thinking. Um, it's a scientific way of thinking. It's not just science. Though. It's not just formal science. It's, you know, I know this coffee mug. I'm pretty confident this coffee mug exists in front of me and I haven't really done any science there, right? It's just a direct in direct perception. Um, But even a naturalistic way of thinking doesn't really tell you about morality, what to care about. Um, So then I turn to, um, in fact, I should probably stop there really, because that's in a way a really long answer for how I got to naturalism and, and then what naturalism is. Yeah. And in a way, I think the, 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 method is the most important bit It's use evidence and reason to develop credences, uh, about the world that can be probabilistic, so you're never 100% sure, but you move your probability credence, if you like, up and down as the evidence gets stronger or weaker. Uh, your credences, your beliefs, should be prob- provisional as well. You know, you're always open to new evidence that might come in. Um, we know how difficult it is to listen to evidence that you don't want to hear, but you have to do that. Um, yeah, so I guess that's you know the naturalistic stance I've got to now.
0: Yeah, great. And I think um, we will have to take a song in a moment. But just before we go there, I thought it was kind of interesting that, um, yeah, it's interesting like learning more about religion or particularly learning about other religions beyond what you're grown up with can kind of lead to some people questioning that. I remember even speaking to someone who was religious who was saying like, well, we all believe like our thing in this room. But there's thousands of other religions How do I know this Like I've, I've sort of won the lottery And picked the correct one You know and So I think yeah. like Just learning or just being aware Whereas you mentioned Sort of growing up with that Just being surrounded by that one religion There's perhaps less capacity to question Because it's just constantly reinforced There's not other people say No actually I've found the right God Or the right religion uh, as yeah. well But perhaps we can continue that in a moment We'll go to a song though now um, This is um, All of these songs are picked by Jamie The first one is is human by Seb Deleza um, Anything you'd like to say about this song Before we go to it?
1: No, it's got quite a dark tone But um, yeah, I just love the feel of it um, And uh, a hat tip to Jay Shapiro Who used it as the intro music When I appeared on his podcast Dilemma podcast a while ago um, But it's got a nice feel to it And it does centre um, I guess a naturalistic way of thinking about What it is to be human yeah. I-
0: Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword
1: a 3cr supporter
0: welcome back to freedom of species on 3 3cr community radio i'm speaking to jamie woodhouse who is host of sentientism podcast and yeah we're talking about a wide range of issues today around um yeah reason and evidence uh and also caring about all sentient beings and and i guess bringing those two aspects together that rationality or or belief in evidence and also um yeah extending compassion beyond um just the human species as well uh and you touched on that a little bit you spoke earlier about sort of moving from a religious worldview to towards you know worldview more based around you know evidence and, and science and those kind of things um and you also mentioned that you connected with some aspects of religion in terms of some of the compassionate aspects, which was limited as well in terms of who that was extended to, but there was, I guess, always that compassion there. But did that compassion always um, extend beyond the humans or was that something that occurred later on?
1: Yeah, that took me a while too. So uh, to continue the journey, if you like, I guess I got to this sort of naturalistic way of thinking about the universe, but it doesn't necessarily guide you that strongly to a sort of moral stance and ethical stance. So I was quite drawn at that point to uh, humanism, secular humanism. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with that worldview and that movement. Um, sometimes it can sound like it was invented in the Enlightenment in Europe. But as with many of these ideas, it has much deeper, more ancient roots. Um, and in a way, it takes that naturalistic way of understanding, evidence, reason, Uh, and says look we don't really need a supernatural or a religious framework for our ethics we can commit to a universal compassion and the clue is in the name for all humans so to me that took what i liked about this naturalistic way of thinking and it layered on uh you know a more rational ethic that said all humans matter um and to many of your listeners you know that you'd already be anticipating there's a there's a challenge or a limitation there um and uh That was a part of the challenge I then started to spot within humanism. So uh, I I was probably a fairly typical humanist in that when I thought critically about my compassion, it already wasn't really just restricted to humans. You know, I already cared in some conditional sense about non-humans as well. And I cared about them for the same reason I cared about humans. The reason I cared about humans as a humanist was because of their capacity to suffer, to flourish, you know, and I could identify with their point of view, their perspective, um, you know, in a way that seems quite central to me in a, once you've gone to a naturalistic ethics that isn't about compliance or obedience or submission to a deity, if you're going to have a more, you know, real world (laughs) grounded ethics, it's almost central that we have to try and take the perspective of the other. And it's our appreciation for that perspective emotionally or intellectually. That means we care about them. We choose to care about, you know, I don't like suffering Pretty sure you don't either you know ethics is just my choice to care about that um, and and the boundaries were already a little bit f- flexible because you know we had a companion animal as a member of our family. Um, you know I certainly would not have seen causing suffering to non humans as morally neutral, right so in a sense, I already had this sort of porous boundary and allowed some non humans in. Um, but as with most people on the planet today, and certainly the people around me then, I didn't play through any of those implications. Um, my my sister was went vegetarian quite early, so that was one of the factors in our you know environment that just prompted me to start chipping away at this and thinking, hold on, there's something wrong here. There's a limit here that doesn't make sense. And if you're committed to a naturalistic way of thinking, you know, trying to check your own biases and break through those social norms and try and be more compassionate and more rational. There's something going wrong here. Um, and then that did lead me to go vegetarian in my, I guess, early, early mid twenties, partly because I recognised that link from, um, I you know, care about other humans because of their capacity to suffer. They're not the only beings that have that capacity to suffer. You know, isn't it arbitrary to restrict my consideration? Um, Uh, So, you know, that was one one practical step I took. Um, But then, um, clearly, that's only another partial step. And you might argue that any step we take is partial because there's no perfection to be achieved here. Right. But it did take me probably another 20 years or so um, to make another big change and to go vegan Um, sort of embarrassingly long period of time. But when i went vegan that coincided with me also having another slightly more structured to think about humanism and its limitations um so i kept coming back to this idea of humanism saying look i like the naturalism i like the universal compassion but i was increasingly disturbed by its anthropocentrism you know its focus on the human even though some humanist organizations do update their definitions and say oh we also have a concern for other non-human animals it was very clearly tokenistic, it's not central to what they're trying to do. Um, and so, in a way, that's what led me to uh think about basically borrowing this quite obscure term sentientism from uh animal ethics academia, trying to recast it in a more modern light and you know make something more publicly known. So,
0: yeah, and and you mentioned the um yeah I, I guess think about ethics and you mentioned you weren't brought up particularly religious but there was perhaps some aspects of morality that you did get for a religion so i guess a a question i've mentioned is yeah definitely some people and perhaps when they're raised when their life is maybe where religion is more central to their life there is that question of how do i be moral when the way i was previously moral was through my religion so did you have that issue or was it more um because it was perhaps not a century your life it was less of less of a challenge in that regard
1: yeah that can be that can be a, a real difficulty for some people it leaves mm-hmm. a, you know a real gap and they have this sense of having to rebuild and create uh, morality or find a new route to morality and i didn't really find that as a difficulty because and i think this is probably true of many religious people too we actually under the covers already have a sort of default compassionate morality that for many people is actually uh you know more deeply rooted than even the religious stuff they've learned so in a way part of the reason i was challenging my religious worldview and ethics was because of a more intuitive universal compassion that i already had so in a way moving away from the religion really just freed me to explore that and build on that rather than feeling like it left a gap um, and i think you'll find that in uh, you know, the social history of most religions as you learn about how they have evolved, because although some of them will say, you know, here is the incontrovertible, unchanging word of God, of course, religious worldviews and communities shift their ethics over time. And what most of them are doing, and again, there are thousands of different varieties moving at different paces, what most of them are doing are, is really updating their, you know, hundreds or thousands of years old morality to become more and more in line with a humanist or ideally a sentientist universal modern compassion so you know the the process of cherry picking and editing out the nastier bits of the bible and emphasizing emphasizing you know the more universal compassion stuff you know is a deliberate process of editing but the guiding star there is no longer in reality is no longer the word of god it isn't the guiding star is actually a secular, <laughs> universal humanist ethic, um, you know, and that's a positive development, I guess. Um, but yeah, yeah, so I found it quite freeing because, in you know, it felt like the religious supernatural context was a was a break, a friction, a constraint on what felt to me like a much more obviously naturalistic, universal compassion.
0: Yeah, and I think there definitely are um re- like religious arguments for. You know, things that I would view as positive, like veganism, for example. Um, But I often find those arguments are really on really weak ground. I certainly remember hearing one argument around um, like Adam and Eve we're vegan therefore you know therefore veganism is good yeah. and it's like well okay but does that mean we shouldn't listen to podcasts because they weren't listening to podcasts either so it, we kind of get these weak arguments and so sometimes we can get arguments so i often find those arguments are yeah sort of very weak and, and not very convincing philosophically um but I yeah. guess on the flip side I think I see a lot more barriers to progressive thinking regardless of the issue um, including veganism as well like barriers such as uh, views from some religious people um, that you know only humans have souls but not, not non-human animals or this idea of having dominion over other animals etc which, which yeah. people can overcome but I, I kind of see them as more like barriers and when people do overcome them um, often it is more about um, yeah having these progressive ideals like you say sort of despite their religion more than
1: because of it i guess yeah and i think that probably is fair to say and it's always difficult to you know generalize when we're talking about such a complex rich picture as the world of religion um, because many religious people and religious communities have i think done you know really powerful positive work in progressive human social causes and in um, you know you look at the animal interfaith alliance for example there's some people working within a bunch of different religions you know eastern and western and um, and african trying to push their religious communities to be more compassionate about non-human animals as well so there's there's a lot of positives there Mm -hmm. but i agree that generally that's because the people driving those movements have an underlying compassion Mm -hmm. and they're driving those changes despite the history and the context and the formality of their religion Mm -hmm not because of the religion they're doing it because of compassion they're not doing it because of a a deity or a god they might disagree with that but i think that's fair and i do also think it's fair that when you look across the full cast of supernatural ways of thinking religious and not in general they hold back compassionate progressive development of our ethics um and they do today as well we're not just talking about some of the more fundamentalist religions but if you look at even um you know, some of the major religions that are seen as mainstream and completely socially acceptable today, uh, some of them still absolutely formally in their policies have sexism, homophobia, constraints on contraceptive freedom. You know, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. And these aren't extreme examples. These are absolutely mainstream examples of religions today that are formally accepted in the network of our society. You know, in the UK, they're sitting in the House of Lords. Um yeah so I, generally I think there's there's some really positive things going on hmm. driven by religious people but on average it's been a constraint on our progress both on human and non-human animals and you make an important point there about because you know there are many people with a naturalistic world view who have a speciesist distinction between humans and non-humans as well and they'll come up with all sorts of rationales for that although most don't bother You know, they will just deny the topic because they don't want to think about it, which is, to be honest, what I did. But there are also many explicitly religious rationales as well. As you said, the presence of a soul, humans being made in the image of a god, uh, dominion. You know, there are um, there's so much in human psychology that is driven to put us at the center, us at the top of a pyramid, us at the top of a hierarchy, us in a position of power. Sort of understandable. But, you know, once you've seen. It's manifestation in one place. You start to see it everywhere.
0: Yeah, and I think even when it does come to to issues of human progress like absolutely like religious people have been at the forefront of progressive movements and progressive yeah. social change absolutely and like in a way like if they want to say that was because of their religion that that that's that's fine as well and and perhaps yeah, that, that yeah. they know better but I, I just remember um hearing an analysis from kim sochoo who's written about atheism and animal liberation and and she was talking about martin luther king's famous i have a dream speech and she was saying basically if you take out the religious stuff from that speech all of the substance is still there like because he he was religious there's sort of some references of like god's children etc but yeah if you take out all that stuff like it's it's just as strong as it is it just kind of has that religious framework because he was also religion religious um in addition to being um Yeah, in in addition to being concerned about racial justice um, and economic justice and other kinds of issues as well. So, yeah, I I think that, like, again, there are progressive religious people, but I don't think it's necessarily like religion. It's more, again, those people being progressive kind of based on other ethics, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. 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 Yeah uh let's go to another track and then we're going to talk a little bit about um the future and trying to i guess put some of this stuff into practice and work towards a better world um we're going to play a song though first this is rewilding by jonathan crisp and any uh comments on this song um jamie yeah, again,
1: I, I picked it for the aesthetics more than the meaning. Mm-hmm. But, yes. you know, the, the rewilding is a really interesting topic in its own right because one of the areas where sentientism might get challenging, even for many vegans and animal advocates, is that it grants moral consideration for all sentient beings, not just humans, not just farmed animals, but also uh, maybe the quadrillion of wild animals that are out there. Um, and it doesn't mean... uh it's easy to work out what we do to help them but it does mean we should have moral consideration for those wild animals too so maybe as we think about you know the title of this song rewilding which is something that i think most people would want to push for for environmental reasons you might also need to think about the experiences of the wild animals in those areas you know what are the trophic chains how much suffering is going on in the places we are rewilding maybe that should be a consideration too so yeah. Grounding Disability Justice. 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on the 3rd of December, 7am to 7pm. We're making space to explore what disability justice has been and will be on these lands, with programming led by Black and Indigenous community members, in addition to programs by disabled broadcasters from the 3CR community. Visit 3 crorgau day 2021
0: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR Radical Radio. We're talking to Jamie Woodhouse today on the show about a sentientist approach to ethics and yeah we 're going to talk a little bit about what the future might look about look look like uh, in terms of compassion for all sentient beings, how we can get there and i 'm sure we'll weigh into some of the debates going on within the animal movement. And and based on the last song um which was Rewilding by Jonathan Crisp, um that that is the issue of wild animal suffering, which um other Freedom of Species hosted a whole show on um recently, which you can check out. Um but I thought we it would be interesting to briefly get your perspective on this topic. Um and I, I guess the Uh, a common objection and I think I have some sympathy with this perspective as well in that I guess like humans are already directly causing so much harm to animals like should we just sort of ignore the other stuff is sort of one uh, thing like well it kind of reminds me actually a little bit it's not exactly the same thing but I do remember um yeah a bunch of academics in the field of animal studies being and beyond just as a general thing being very excited about this question of um is it okay to photograph wildlife or or free living animals because they don't give their consent and i kind of thought like it is an interesting question it is an important question but I'll kind of like, I'll worry about that once we're no longer like slaughtering animals yeah. as well. And I, I do yeah. kind of, some come feel like these sort of marginal cases and, and yeah, like similar kind of like academics in the field as well. Like looking about, Oh, sometimes there's, like uh, this gray area between where animals are not wild or domesticated; they're somewhere in the middle. And I was like, "Yeah, but that pig in the slaughterhouse is definitely domesticated." Like, let's sort of focus on that. Like, and so I f- yeah. sometimes feel like these sort of gray areas and sort of areas on the side, like or like sort of marginal cases, like they're they're kind of like exciting academically, but then some of these same academics kind of focus on those questions at The expense of like more fundamental questions of uh yeah should these industries that exploit and kill animals exist those kind of questions so um yeah how how do you feel about that topic of wild animal suffering particularly in light of i guess like humans do cause direct harm to wild animals as well but yeah i guess the the animal movement tends to put a lot of um effort quite rightly into the use of animals for food because that is where such a huge number of animals are killed. But um, yeah, your thoughts on the wild animal suffering
1: topic. Yeah, so one of the irritating things about this sentientism idea is it doesn't really tell us what to do um, about specific topics. It doesn't tell us how to prioritize. It doesn't tell us how to um, organize. It doesn't tell us what the right answers are. It just tries to set a really simple baseline to say... I think that can be a positive thing as well. Like, well, yeah, well, I, I yeah. do too, right? So it's, it's irritating in a way because when you say, <laughs> right, what should we do about X? The answer is, well, Sentientists will disagree, Mm. but I think that's also its power Mm. is that it's trying to just focus really strongly on setting this baseline, which says we should have a naturalistic way of understanding the world. Engaging with reality is the best way to understand it, never perfect, but you know, it's the only approach viably we have rather than just making stuff up. So let's stick with that. And then on the compassion side, it says all sentient beings warrant compassion and moral consideration. Um, and so in a sense a sentientist stance would say look you might argue about priorities you might say that wild animal suffering shouldn't be a priority you might argue that um, it's really complex so we don't know what to do Uh, you might worry that um, humans have a terrible track record of intervening in stuff and things tend to go badly so we shouldn't intervene Um, you might have this sort of romantic view of the wild as you know almost intrinsically good in its own right. And therefore we should leave it alone. And I guess sentientism would say, well, you can think those things if you like, but none of those are a reason for withdrawing our moral consideration from those wild animals. You might choose not to focus on them. You might not choose not to intervene, but you still have to maintain that moral consideration for each of those sentient beings. Um, And I do think that will shift our calculus as we think about what to do and what not to do, because I guess one of the one of the most important things about wild animal suffering, and I'm open minded about how much of a priority it should be, is it's not really a marginal question in terms of its scale. Um, So Mm -hmm. one way you might think about trying to make the world better from a sentientist perspective is you start saying, okay, let's identify the sentient beings and where are they? And you might anthropocentrically say, well, okay, we've got 7.8 billion humans. We've got maybe 80 to 100 billion land animals every year being cycled through the horror of land animal farming you might look at you know the couple of trillion fish that we farm or catch every year and those are obvious central places to start because of human agency and the role we play in the catastrophic suffering across those populations when you start thinking about the wild you go to a completely different scale um, you know it, it's it's almost it's very hard to calculate but people have talked about a quadrillion you know the next step beyond another 3 zeros beyond a trillion quadrillion um, sentient beings potentially out there um that are also having experiences and sentientism simply says they they matter too um so i share a lot of the skepticism about um you know human hubris and our intervention in the wild although as you say we're already intervening massively in the wild so it's not really a choice about whether we intervene or not at the very least we should look at our interventions and try not to cause so much harm to wild animals um i think there's also, a lot of that va- valid concern about you know the level of complexity we 're talking about multi layered complex ecosystems with feedback systems that we don 't fully understand and the idea of us you know uh, arrogant humans charging in there and trying to make changes I, absolutely we should be concerned about that and be cautious but at the same time, there are some quite simple things we can already do now and are being done to help wild animals, whether it's wildlife corridors whether it's vaccinations for Wild animals, whether it's you know, sensible fencing and segregation instead of culling, whether it's contraception maybe again instead of culling. So there are some sort of more solid things where you can see a really strong route to reducing wild animal suffering too. And I think there's also another concern which comes back to this ethics thing. Um, a, a lot of thinking in ethics is about is about human agents, and what I mean by agents is you know the the things that are taking moral decisions and judging those decisions as to whether they're right or wrong, good or bad. And I think that's an important, you know, central thing of ethics. What are we doing? This, are we doing good things or bad things? Are our, our actions our intent, Are they good or bad? So people talk about virtue ethics or list of rules we have to comply with, or, you know, and all of those things are just really looking at the human agent and saying, you know, are we doing good or bad? The danger with only focusing on humans as agents is that you imply that as long as a human isn't doing a bad thing ethically, there are no problems remaining. Mm. And frankly, that just isn't true. We see that even in the human sphere, right? If there's a natural disaster, um, there's an earthquake, no human caused that. But we still see it as a morally, a moral problem, an ethical problem because of the results that are happening to the moral patients you know the Mm. the victims of this thing and i think that's an interesting way of thinking about wild animal suffering as well is you know yes there's wild animal suffering that humans are causing and we should stop doing that that's pretty obvious but there's also a lot of wild animal suffering that humans have no involvement in at all we're not it's not our fault it's not our problem uh you know there's no human ethical mistake that's been made but that suffering still matters Mm. it doesn't mean it's easy to work out what to do and how we should prioritize but again that's probably too much of a rambling on answer but that's that's the appeal i come back to is you know there are many difficult challenges there but let's just not lose that core moral consideration for each of those sentient beings
0: yeah yeah and i think there's obviously the expression first do no harm but obviously that doesn't mean we have to stop there as well yeah I i think that's definitely a really good point um and yeah, as you say, a lot of these issues are really complex, but yeah, we shouldn't lose sight of it. I guess more what I was saying with the marginal cases is I, I guess I'm thinking of discussions about actually intervening in other animals, harming other animals, like other free-living animals. Um, and yeah, I think it's an interesting, an interesting discussion. But as you say, even when it comes to you know wild or free-living animals, we're already as you say it's definitely not all humans fault but there are many ways in which we harm them through habitat destruction and, and those kind of things So i'd, I'd say that would probably be a, a good place to start in terms of addressing this issue not that we have to stop there necessarily but um, yeah looking at the ways in which yeah we are sort of directly and indirectly harming free living animals for sure yeah I agree and as ever there's there's real
1: obvious win-wins here right because one of the main reasons we've destroyed habitats and harmed wild animals is because of the crazy expansion of uh, animal farming in its own right so you know even there there are still win wins where you could see you know good results from things we're already working on but just thinking a little bit broader about the implications of so
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think that is sort of getting back to this idea of like not just focusing on domesticated animals, ignoring, you know, free living animals, but also I think often that is sometimes kind of reversed in a lot of more conservation kind of discussions where it's like there's these wildlife conflicts with um, you know, so called livestock with, with cows and those kind of animals. And it's just never considered as a solution. Well, maybe we should stop farming these animals, and that would immediately yeah. get rid of these conflicts as well it's just never it's never kind of
1: on the table um, but i agree know- and, even, and even even many people who are you know comfortable with the animal advocacy in the vegan spaces mm. will still apply a different mode of thinking when it comes to those you know ecological or conservation questions which means they're essentially not really taking the perspective of the individual sentient beings into consideration so um yeah the the default mode of human operation with the wild is either to magically revere it as something wondrous, not to be touched or to just destroy it completely. Mm. Um, And where there are conflicts of interest with wild animals, the default option is just to kill them. Um, Mm. uh, And even many, you know, supposedly ecologically environmentally sensitive people will, you know, posit those types of solutions to protect habitats. Um, And the individual beings suffer, but the habitats don't. So, just shifting our way of thinking to recognize each of the individual wild beings, you know, whether it's deer or badgers or whatever it is, or kangaroos as sentient beings in their own right. doesn't mean we won't have to take still difficult decisions, maybe harm them, maybe kill them, but just recognizing their moral worth as individuals often opens up completely new ways of thinking about solutions that, you know, to sidestep this human default of if in doubt, just cull some more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, because we are nearly out of time we've, in terms of the future we've just focused on you know wild animal suffering but definitely um getting onto the final question of how can people following keep up with your work definitely check out sentient sentientism podcast for you know jamie's thoughts and, and discussions with other people as well on you know sort of what the future could look like and d- debates within advocacy on all kinds of debates including white animal suffering but also you know animal rights animal welfare individual change versus systemic change and all kinds of issues so yeah let's uh finish up with i guess anything you wanted to say that you didn't get to but also any any ways in which listeners can keep up with your podcast and other facebook groups etc
1: yeah i I'd, I'd say that um the implication sentientism seems like a super basic idea you know evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings, but it does have pretty radical implications um, you know we talked about wild animal suffering, it has obvious implications in terms of uh, essentially e- ending animal farming and exploitation as well, um, but it also has direct implications for are human challenges as well you know as we look across the 7.8 billion humans we have here today um, so in terms of you know rejecting discrimination granting moral consideration to all humans because they're sentient too irrespective of their background caste race culture sexuality you know so in a sense it shares that progressive open-minded liberal humanist stance for humans but just extends that to all sentient beings it also slightly more crazily might get us intellectually ready for if there might one day be artificial or even alien sentience we encounter or create um but yeah i d- you know the implications go on and on so we've thought about what might sentientist politics look like what might a universal declaration of sentient rights look like how can we upgrade all of the sort of progressive things that we're trying to do for humans and just expand them out to all sentient beings um so the places i'd point people towards sentientism.info is our website that has the links to everything um we run a, a sentientism youtube and podcast uh, anyone is welcome to join our online community groups they're open to anyone interested not just sentientists so if you just like this sort of stuff come and join and have a chat the biggest one is on facebook but we're on most of the other platforms as well um, and we're on twitter as well at sentientism and at jamie woodhouse and if you're struggling with the term because i know it has a few too many syllables it's just sentient with ism on the end and then hopefully that will sink in and become a little bit easier to say
0: yeah yeah, it's might been a pleasure to be here it might have been useful for me throughout the discussion to uh (laughs) to think about that as well but um yeah, just before we take off, just a, a couple of announcements. Uh, I've got I've got a, a bit of a sad one, actually, but I think very important to mention. Just um, a, a guest who was on our show a while ago, we played one of his talks, um, has recently passed away. So um, Bede Carmody, um, who was an animal advocate, he ran um, an animal sanctuary called A Poultry Place, Um, and yeah, he passed away, um, yeah, recently and yeah, um, I think he was just someone who really i don't know if he was aware of the term sentientism but definitely lived that in his everyday life and spend of, in terms of running an animal sanctuary like by himself like he got help as well but he was the only one living there on site and running that full-time uh while he also worked for amnesty international full-time as well doing human rights work so yeah quite quite an amazing activist and yeah even though we're a movement for animals i think it's really important to to um, yeah, celebrate the work of people done like Bede. Um, fortunately, uh, the animals uh, or many of the animals from a poultry place have been rehomed at Edgar's Mission, another animal sanctuary and, and there was um, people who donated to that. So thanks to everyone who donated and, and made that possible and so they found a good home there. Um, and yeah, Bede was a really great speaker and yeah, with that sort of juggling, that full-time human, human rights work, animal sanctuary um, as well, Um, He was a really good person to speak on the issue of activist burnout because he had to be really aware of that doing so much and so yeah he's also got a TEDx talk as well which is on youtube but yeah you can listen to our episode it's just called bead Carmody: preventing activist burnout i think it's a really important talk and i think it's really person important person to give that talk i'll also link to a canberra time story about his life and has some um, quotes from friends and fellow advocates about his life and his work as well so i thought it's important just to mention that at the end of the discussion you can check out all the, yeah, that episode with bead and all our episodes via 3cr.org.au forward slash Freedom of Species. We're also on iTunes and Spotify and a bunch of other apps as well. If you have any feedback on the show, our email is freedomofspecies at gmail.com. We're also on social media as well. Um, stay tuned for rotations to hear some music. And we're going to finish up with the song... Um, yeah, it is Paradise Engineering by Barker. Um so I believe you mentioned it's inspired by philosopher David Pierce's work. Um but yeah, thanks so much for joining me today and I'll just give you the opportunity to say any any words about the final song if you'd like
1: yeah i would encourage anyone to look up david pierce's work um it's really mind-bending um he's a vegan uh he has a sentientist worldview he was a guest on my own podcast as well okay. but he also links into thinking unashamedly about the human capacity to use technology to make the world a radically better place for all sentient beings so if you want some mind-bending deeply compassionate philosophy then david pierce is a place to go and this uh, track and in fact the album was inspired by his work